Uh, now to the Word. You know, sometimes it's rather easy to discern whether someone is making a claim that is true, right? So, for example, if someone tells you they make the claim, I am a runner, okay? It'd be pretty easy to, to discern if that's true. You could ask them, so tell me, how many, how many miles did you run in February, okay? And so if they, told, if they told you, well, I ran about 100 miles, you'd say, wow, you are a runner. But if they told you, like me, if they told you, say, well, actually, I haven't run in about a decade, then you would say, well, maybe you were a runner, but you are actually not a runner currently. And so sometimes it's very easy to discern whether a claim is true. But how would you discern a claim like I believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, what criteria would you use to evaluate whether or not the person that made that claim actually had a living, saving faith in Jesus Christ? That's the topic of today's passage. In James 2, we're going to look at verses 14 through, through 26. And like a dog chewing on a bone, James is going to grab a hold of this topic, and he is not going to let go until he's absolutely finished talking about it. And so in verse 14, it gives the thesis, faith without works is useless, okay? That's a thesis. By the time you get to the end of the chapter, James, James will have restated that thesis four times, okay? So it's a total of five times in 13 verses. Faith without works is useless. It's dead. It's not alive. It's like a corpse. And so he's going to say it over and over. By the end of the chapter, he will have illustrated it. He will have answered objections. He would have given two examples from the Old Testament. So by the end of the passage, there will be no doubt about how a person can evaluate the claim, I have faith in Jesus Christ. We begin in verse 14, the thesis, faith without works is useless, such faith does not save a person. And so he lays out the main point he's going to argue in the next 12 verses, verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren? So he's talking to fellow believers, men and women. If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? So James says, imagine someone who makes a claim, I have faith. And yet that person has no works. He doesn't actually do the core things that someone who follows Christ just naturally should do. Uh, in chapter 1, James has already said, pure and undefiled religion is visiting widows and orphans in their distress and keeping oneself unstained by the world. In 2.8, he said, this is what Christians do. This is what you do is you love your neighbor as yourself. And so James asks that if a person says, I have faith, but doesn't do those things, he says, can that faith save him? The implied answer is no, okay? So that gives us the answer to the first question he asks. He says, that is not a saving faith. Therefore, the answer to the first question, what use is that type of faith? The answer is none at all. Now, how does that sound to you? Does that sound a little bit harsh? You're like, James, lighten up here. We're trying, okay? Does that sound harsh? Well, if it sounds harsh, we need to understand that in the context of the new covenant, having faith doesn't merely mean you believe in God in some vague way. It doesn't merely mean that you're staying positive or that you're a spiritual person. In the context of the new covenant, the person who has faith 
is the person who says, God, I believe that Jesus, your unique son, he left the prerogatives of heaven. He became one of us so that he could fully identify with us so that he could die for our sins. If you have faith, you're saying to God, God, I believe that everything that Jesus experienced, everything the world threw at him when he was here, he did that for my benefit. I believe that, that he was rejected, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, for a time at least, by his own family. Uh, Jesus was tempted, he was misunderstood, he was wrongly convicted by, of, of blasphemy against his heavenly father, the one with whom he had spent eternity, with uh, that father, by people who didn't even know God. He was wrongly accused and condemned to death for blasphemy. And he was mocked, he was beaten, he was scourged, and flesh ripped off his back. They spat upon him. They put nails, uh, spikes through his hands. They put spikes through his feet. And they lifted him up high on a cross. And they left him there to die. If you have faith, you're saying, God, I believe Jesus endured that for me. He did that to die for my sins. And so, and I believe, he, and you say, you're saying, I believe Jesus raised again on the third day. And that's what gives me life. His life is my life. And in response to that kind of faith, God says, I remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. God puts his very spirit within you. God makes you a new creation in Christ. You have new appetites. You are now a disciple. You're apprenticed to Jesus. You learn to follow Jesus. You learn to obey everything that he commanded you. And so... Uh, you say what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ now controls me. The controlling influence in my life is Christ's love for me. He died for me, therefore I live for him. Okay? And so if that's really what faith means, that's what it means to, to say I have faith in the new covenant, then I think James is making a very obvious comment here in this verse. He's saying it's inconceivable that you would have that type of faith and it not affect your life, it not affect the way you actually live your life, however imperfectly, okay? And what we're talking about today, we're not talking about sinless perfection, okay? That's off the table. That's not, that's not a, a huge problem for a lot of us, right? So we're talking about there's no evidence of that work in a person's life. In verses 15 through 17, he gives a real-life scenario of faith without works. And this would have been a true-to-life example in, in the churches to, to which he wrote. He said, if a brother or sister, so he's talking about a fellow believer in Jesus, somebody else who has genuine faith, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet... Do not give them, do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? And so James says, if you send somebody away with words only, I mean, somebody who needs clothes, somebody who needs food, if you send them away with words only, uh, what use is that? What profit is that? And the implied answer, none at all. And go in peace was a Jewish blessing. That's shalom, okay? That's the way Jews just naturally said goodbye. Like we say, hey, take care. That's a shalom. It's a good thing to say. It's a fine thing to say. But James says, if they need food and clothing and all you send them away with is a blessing, what good is that? And he asks the question there. He says, 
He says, what, uh, what use is that? Uh, it's fine, but that's not what they need. And in verse 17, he restates the thesis and gives a parallel point concerning faith. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Later he's going to say it's like a corpse, actually. It's like a body without the spirit. In verses 18 through 20, he gives some uh, objections. He answers some objections to his thesis that faith without works is dead. And this, these verses are, are confusing in different translations. In the Greek New Testament, uh, they did not have quotation marks. And so translators have to supply quotation marks where they think it's, where they discern it's warranted. And so it differs from translation to translation. Uh, the New American Standard, which is the, the translation uh, you normally preach from, it understands verse 18 in this way. But someone, this is the objector, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so this translation understands that whole thing to be in the mouth of a, a supposed objector. I will spare you the eight or ten ways that scholars understand the punctuation and therefore the meaning. The, the translation I agree with that I think is, is correct is the New, the New International Version or the English Standard Version, which understands it this way. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. That's what the objector says. And the rest of the verse is James's reply to that person. And so James has an opponent say, you know, some people have faith, some people have works, right? We all have our different strengths. It's kind of like people have different gifts in the body, and that's fine. They say, well, some people major on faith, other people major on works. They don't have to go together. James's response is, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The implication there is that you really can't show somebody something directly show something is intangible about uh, uh, such as intangible as their faith. Like, here, look at my faith right now. Right? You, you can't do it. James says you have to show it by your works. It demonstrates whether or not you have faith. In verse 19, James addresses just how inadequate it is to have a type of faith that is exclusively intellectual, that is exclusively in your mind, a type of faith that is purely doctrinal, believing, technically believing the right things. And he makes a reference to the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for here. It's in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And he picks up on that in verse 19. You believe that God is one. He says, you do well. That's right. That is correct. But the demons also believe and shudder. And so demons are fallen angels. They're angels who've rebelled against God. And they also believe that God is one. They have Pretty good doctrine, actually. If you read the Gospels, they understood who Jesus was better than anybody else. They say, what do we have to do with you, the Son of Man? Have you come to torment us before the time, you know? And everybody else is going, we don't even know who this guy is. They really got it. But James's point is, they don't have saving faith. They know the right facts. They don't have saving faith. And so it's, it's almost like James saying, come on, your faith has to be better than that of the demons, Right? And so believing what's true about God, it's essential 
But if it's not this, this loyal, trusting faith in Jesus, uh, it's of no use. If it's purely intellectual and it doesn't produce works, it's useless. Verse, verse 20, for the third time, he states his thesis. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Faith that is never demonstrated, never proven by works is useless. And let me pause and just, just make clear, uh, emphasize that James isn't saying that if you look at your life and you don't see good works, he's not saying get busy, get, uh, try hard, produce some works. He's saying if you look at your life and you don't see works, examine your faith because faith is what produces works. Ultimately, when James is going to come back, he's going to, want, he's going to challenge us to, to examine whether or not we have genuine saving faith that produces works. When you look at verses 21 and following, he gives some biblical examples of faith that works. And he wants to establish that this isn't some new idea that in the Old Testament, when people had genuine saving faith, they also had works. That was the demonstration that they had genuine works. And he mentions two people in the Old Testament that in some ways could not be more different. But when it came to their faith producing the works, they were identical. There wasn't a dime's worth of difference between them. And so what James is saying is you can be the most revered person in your community like Abraham, or you can be a prostitute like Rahab. It does not matter. If you have genuine faith, you will experience salvation and you, your faith will produce works, good works. First example is Abraham. And he immediately makes reference to an account in Genesis 22. And so this is kind of confusing. We don't have time to look at it in detail. But there, there's two passages that are referenced uh, throughout this, this passage and, and in Paul's treatment. In Genesis 15, it says that Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. So he was declared righteous. Uh, James doesn't refer to that when he talks about Abraham's faith. He talks about Genesis 22, which was years later. And he's going to say that's what demonstrated the faith that was, was recorded in Genesis 15. And he makes a reference to uh, Abraham being commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac, okay? And that's very troubling. It, it's very, uh, it, very nerve-wracking for many reasons. Number one, God everywhere forbids child sacrifice. And number two, Isaac was this, pr this promised child. Through Isaac, Abraham's descendants are going to be as numerous as the sands on the sea. Why would God do this? The only clue we're command this, the only clue we're given is in Genesis 22.1. says that Abraham was, was tested by God. Same way James in uh, James 1, he said, God tests our faith through trials. This was a test for Abraham. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You may be aware of just this statement that Abraham was justified by works. Uh, it has sparked great debate in light of the fact that a few years later in Romans 4, Paul would say pretty much the opposite thing, that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works, okay? 
And what we find here is only an apparent contradiction. It's not an actual contradiction. And I'm going to give a, an explanation that doesn't begin to do justice to the complexity of the issue, but I hope it helps. First of all, James and Paul were using the term justified in two different, equally valid ways. Words can, the same word can be used with different connotations in different contexts. So when Paul wrote that Abraham was justified by faith, he was saying that he was declared righteous by his faith. Again, that's in Genesis 15. When James wrote that Abraham was justified by works, he was saying that uh, he demonstrated the fact that he was righteous by his works. And so James points to Genesis 22 and the account of Abraham offering up Isaac, an event that happened years after Genesis 15. And so James is supporting the argument he's been making throughout this passage, genuine saving faith, Genesis 15, is demonstrated by good works, Genesis 22. Second, James and Paul were referring to two very different things when they even used the term works. And so Paul was talking about the works of the law. So he's talking about circumcision, the sacrifices, uh, the dietary rules. When Paul talks about works, he's talking about good works like loving your neighbor as yourself, showing compassion to people in distress. So they're talking about two very different things. Notice how it continues in verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And so Abraham's faith was active. It was informing his works. And as a result uh, of his works, his faith was perfected. His faith became mature. That's what should happen. We start out with a pretty infant, infantile type of faith. And as we live and as we walk with God, as we do works, our faith becomes more mature. We come to verse 23, and James does quote Genesis 15. But significantly, he argues that that scripture, Genesis 15, was fulfilled when Abraham sacrificed Isaac. He says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And so this scripture was fulfilled. It was brought to its fullest expression when he sacrificed Isaac. And then consequently, it's almost a throwaway line, but this is a precious, sweet thing. He was called the friend of God. It's like somebody said, hey, you know Nathan? He's a friend of God, right? It's like, he's a friend of Patrick Mahomes, right? What a big deal. He's a friend of God, right? That's said about every person who has faith in Jesus Christ. James's conclusion for the fourth time you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. People demonstrate and prove that they have saving faith by the works that flow from their faith. The second example is, is Rahab. Read Joshua 2 when you have the chance. And I don't have time to recount what happened in detail. But basically, Rahab gave shelter and protection to two spies that Joshua had sent into Jericho. Verse 25, in the same way... Was not Rahab the harlot also, just like Abraham, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them away, sent them out by another way? And so instead of playing it safe, uh, she took this risk 
and she harbored these spies, and then after she, she did lie, okay? There, there's no explanation given for that. She saved these spies' lives by not telling the truth. And after the, the king's men left, sent them off by another way. And that was evidence of her faith. And if you read, you read Joshua 2, she says, I believe that the God of Israel delivered the, the Israelites, the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. I believe he led them through the, the, the Red Sea. And I believe he's going to give them the promised land. She had that faith. She understood who Yahweh was. Therefore, she took the risk and did that work. For the fifth time, James states the point. Again, this is the dog or the bone. He's about to let go, but he says this one more time. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Uh, Having a spirit is the essential mark of being alive. If the body does not have the spirit, that person is dead. If a person's faith is devoid of works, that person's faith is dead. So we get to the end of this chapter, and James is established. If you want to evaluate, you want to discern whether the claim, I have faith, is true, James says, look at whether or not a person has the type of works that flow from that faith. And so now we move on uh, to the implications. So what do we do with this? Uh, I don't know how you're feeling right now. Uh, I suspect that some of you are very much affirmed because there is undeniable proof of your faith in your life. Others of you may be somewhat troubled. You may be wondering about yourself. Well, how do we move forward? Well, the first thing, if you say, I have faith, if you would say that to somebody, examine your life. If you say, I have faith, examine your life. Now, if you're here today and you would not say that, in other words, if you know that you don't have faith, that you are not a believer and a follower of Christ, you're actually in a better position than the person who is self-deceived, okay? You're seeing clearly on that. And my encouragement to you is to keep seeking God, keep coming to worship, keep hearing the word, keep having spiritual conversations with believers that you trust. God loves to be found by those who seek him, okay? Keep seeking, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You can even ask God for faith. It's not something you do on your own. Say, God, would you give me faith? I want to believe. Cry out to him for faith, okay? And so that, that's, that's one, one situation. Um, But as we've seen, James's concern was about people who say, I have faith, but don't have works, because they dismiss their own brothers and sisters with words only, without giving them food and clothing. They need to conclude, my faith is dead. They need to conclude, my faith, whatever it is, it does not save me. It's not useful to me. It's not useful to the people uh, that I'm supposed to be showing good works to. And, and this is a sobering thing. It's a sobering thing. But some of us here today in this room may come to that very conclusion. You might realize, you know, a long time ago, I prayed a prayer. I had this one experience years ago, and that's the only experience with God I've had. I prayed a prayer. If you ask me how is a person saved, I could give you the right answer. But when I look at my life, yeah, I don't see any evidence. I would never give my hard-earned money to people who need it. Let them take care of themselves. Or you may say, my heart is cold toward God. 
my heart is cold toward other people. I don't really have a desire to obey, you know. All that matters is whatever, that prayer I prayed. I'm, I'm fine with God. If you, come to that, if you come to that place, it is far better to be honest and say, you know, based on what James is saying, I don't have a living faith. My faith is dead. My faith is useless. useless. It's not the kind of faith that can save me. Throughout James, James has been encouraging us to avoid self-deception, thinking we're something, somebody that we're actually not. And so the, the best thing you can do for the rest of your life on earth and, and for eternity is to admit, okay, I don't have that faith. Now what do you do? Well, you humble yourself before God. There's so much at stake. Cry out to God and say, God, I have to have this faith. I've got to have, I am desperate for this faith. I have to know you. I want this life that only you can give me. I want this freedom from sin. I want to, to have works that flow from my faith. And again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Now, of course, genuine believers who have saving faith, we all have periods of disobedience. There's even seasons when we can be pretty apathetic about living out our faith. But if you don't see that type of, of works that flow from a living faith, it's much better to conclude, I don't have genuine faith than to keep pretending. Cry out for mercy. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you examine yourself and you do see faith and works, again, in whatever measure, whatever proportion, uh, one, of the, one of the best things you can do long term is to cultivate a healthy biblical understanding of good works. And I put it that way because it's very common for people to have a distorted view of good works. Uh, something I run across a lot of times is people that say, well, I always feel like God is a demanding father. He's always pointing his finger at me, and I never feel like I can measure up. And you're just like, how much do I have to do to, to, to please God just to get him off my back? And, and obedience and, and good works are this burdensome uh, uh, life-quenching obligation instead of a joyful expression of faith. My encouragement is to spend some time meditating on some of the scriptures like those listed in your bulletin. You know, scriptures inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. These are the types of scripture that can correct uh, distorted thinking about works. And so it's just phenomenal. You get a whole different vision for good works if you look at these. Like in James 1, James said, don't be merely a hearer of the word, but be a doer because that's the person who's blessed. Jesus said in Matthew 7, that's the person who's like the, the house built on the rock. You have stability. First uh, John, John said, those are, the, those are the people that have genuine life, believe the right thing, who love and who pursue obedience. And so you, you will have your, your life, your, your mind renewed if you look at these scriptures. Instead of saying, how much do I have to do? You'll look for opportunities to do good works. The most joyful, satisfied people I know are the people who are zealous for good works. They're just like, this is who I am. I've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And they flow from that person's faith. So this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is an opportunity 